Hello and good afternoon to my AOWs. Thank you for being so patient with me. You probably noticed I missed a week of uploading the show. And last week, if you follow me over on Instagram, I'm at Heather HirschMD, then you'll know I was down and out with a terrible case of the flu. But I'm back this week with a brand new episode. Today, I interview my good friend and colleague, Dr. Juliana Kling. She is a professor of internal medicine and practices at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. I wanted to have a conversation with her about transgender medicine and what an exciting conversation we ended up having. You will notice that I stumbled through a majority of this conversation because I also found my own insecurity at times about not wanting to say the wrong thing or wanting to sound like I knew what I was talking about. As I went to edit this podcast, I actually left all of that in because I want you to feel though, if you are stumbling with some of these topics, you are not alone. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sweet Spot Labs. Intimate dryness is one of the menopausal symptoms I get asked about most in my practice. And it's no wonder estrogen is to the vulva what collagen is to the face. As estrogen decreases, so does the natural moisture in your intimate skin, such as the labia and hair-bearing areas, which can lead to itching, burning, and increased sensitivity. The product I recommend to rescue intimate skin from this discomfort is Rescue Balm from Sweet Spot Labs. No joke. It's an ultra rich intimate moisturizer that is 100% naturally derived and packaged with active levels of collide oatmeal, zinc oxide, sweet almond oil to soothe and protect intimate skin. I not only love what's in it because it really works, but also what's not in it. So Sweet Spot Labs has been pioneering clean, intimate skincare since 2003. And they formulate without any common irritants, allergens, hormones, hormone disruptors, or yeast food sources. Rescue Balm is free from water, preservatives, fragrance, silicones, propylene, glycol, steroids, hormones, parabens, glycerin, and even from poor clogging ingredients like coconut oil, just to name a few. And like all Sweet Spot Labs products, Rescue Balm is hypoallergenic and clinically proven by unbiased third-party gynecologists and dermatologists to be non-irritating on intimate skin, even with daily use. That's why I really, really feel comfortable recommending it to anyone and everyone, including me, and even those with very sensitive skin. Visit Sweet Spot Labs and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off your first order. That's S-W-E-E-T-S-P-O-T-L-A-B-S.com and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off. Welcome everyone. I'm so excited, Joel, to have you on today. So today I wanted to have a conversation, talk, discussion about transgender medicine. Of course, our focus um, today will be also midlife and how that's experienced by folks with ovaries, but I'm so excited to have you on 
And let's start with, actually, you helped me to talk through this a little bit before we just started recording. Let's start with the basics of, you know, walk the listeners and myself through the basics between uh, the differences between for sex and gender before we get into bigger, bigger topics like transgender and transgender medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And Heather, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure. And thanks for all you do to promote conversations like these um, to everybody. Um, So you're right. You know, I think many times us as clinicians get anxious because we want to do the right thing for our patients and caring for um, transgender non-binary people kind of put us in a position where we feel like we're going to say the wrong thing. So understanding some of the basics, the terminology can be helpful. And I think also helps us put it into the context of sex and gender just broadly, you know, Um, sex is uh, considered a biologic variable. So that's like our chromosomal sex can be considered anatomic sex, um, whereas gender is a social construct. And sometimes it's more helpful to think about us each as having a self and then being defined by the sex, the gender identity, a gender expression, which is just how we express ourselves, And those three things can be the same or they can be different. And then there's also sexual orientation. Now, a lot of people lump it together. And to be honest, you know, it's the LGBTQ community, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. But when we talk about gender and sexual orientation, those are totally separate things. So we can't assume one based on the other. Yeah. And I I can see how those four different stars or four different points you just kind of mentioned, like, can be so fluid. Like, you know, we can use me for an example, right? I certainly can... Uh, dress in clothes that are more masculine, but still identify as feminine. My sexual orientation could be another thing. Like they can all change at all different times. So well said. And that's how we think about it. You know, I think historically people have thought about many of these concepts on a binary. You're either male or female, you're woman or male, you're a woman or a man, or you're, you know, straight or gay when really it is more fluid. um, Mm -hmm. And there's, it's more uh, better thought on a spectrum. And then it can change over time. Like to your point, an example I'll give when I'm talking to people about these concepts is for myself, you know, I'm, my sex recorded at birth is female. I, my gender identity is I'm a woman. Um, but when I was growing up, I grew up with two younger brothers and I was a tomboy. Like I wore shorts and a big t-shirt. And so my gender expression would look male, even though I was very secure in my gender identity and knew my sex recorded at birth. So each, each of us have those four components and they can change over time. And they're, yeah, again, thought on a spectrum. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the timeline in terms of when in the medical community did we really actually make more breakthroughs, and I think you're going to say more recently, um, into really helping to better uh, better have patients feel more comfortable, um, knowledge about, I guess we're still working on it, as I'm saying it, yeah. right? I'm sort of thinking yeah. like, this is now, this is today, this is why we're talking about this, but like, you know, I think, I guess, tell us, tell me a little bit about the history of like, how long have we been doing, um, you know, uh, transgender medicine? When did it become really a lot more talked about? And how much work do we have to do? I can make some guesses, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, Uh, no, I think those are great questions. And maybe a place to start 
because a, a lot of people have heard about this more often, right? And it's not necessarily the medical community has now, you know, caught up and is is able to do a better job, but it's that society has been more em embracing of all sexes and, and genders. Um, and so some people think this is a new thing. It's a fad, you know, people are exploring their genders when really, when you look historically, yeah. there have always been people that are trans. There have always been non-binary people. They just haven't been in a culture. Most, uh, you know, people in a culture that has embraced or accepted that. And so have had to, you know, stay closeted, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's probably been, gosh, over the last 20 to 30 years that we've started to see um, guidelines and recommendations for how we support um, medically um, people that are transgender or non-binary. Um, WPATH is one of the first kind of guidelines that came out. And in fact, just in September, they had their, I believe their eighth edition come out of the, the guidelines to help guide transgender care. Um, the Endocrine Society has also um, issued guidelines, their most recent in 2017. Um, the most challenging part, I think, for us in, in medicine, besides the, you know, wanting to do the right thing and not say the wrong thing to a patient, is that, okay. yeah, like all of us, um, but the we like evidence, right? We like random yep. control trials and yep. everything we do when we talk about menopause and hormone therapy is rooted in, in data. When it comes to care for transgender non-binary people, there's just really so little data to guide our treatment that makes it very challenging. So when you're asked, like, is there an increased risk of breast cancer for transgender women who have been on, you know, estrogen? We don't really know. We think so. And so there's expert guidelines about starting screening mammograms after age 50 and five years of hormone therapy, but we just don't have that robust data we have for cisgender women. And that goes for kind of every area. Um, a lot of the data, interestingly, um, has been extrapolated from cisgender women um, as it relates to like the you know, Women's Health Initiative and things like that. So as, as we've looked at blood clot risk and things like that, but we know, you know, Heather in medicine, that's not precise, we're extrapolating, but we do with what we can. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a lot like menopause, you know, earlier today I was having, and actually I phoned you last week to talk about frequency of progesterone, something that mm -hmm. I thought we would actually have a good evidence-based data on how much progesterone uh, is, it protects the endometrial lining, but even something like that, which we really should have a lot of data on, we mostly have it on something like PremPro. So again, if I'm thinking about how much menopausal data for cis women, we have to sort of sift through the evidence that we have to come up with uh, guidelines, best practices. I'm sure it's even less, right? With trans, with trans medicine. Yeah, no, that's, it's an excellent point. When we talk about this idea of sex and gender-based medicine, which is this idea that sex is a biologic variable and gender is a social construct, likely influences everything in medicine. Um, yeah. Really, the data telling us how those differences influence is so limited because uh, historically a, a majority of medical research has been done in men or in males really up until the 1990s until you know the National Institute of Health formed the Office of Women's Health um, and then it wasn't until what 2017 that the NIH required that yeah. you know both biologic sexes be included in in any research proposals that were submitted um, and so we still have so much more to learn um, but at the end of the day, we do with what we have. And I think a really important point to make here, um, and then I'll stop just going on and on, but um, you can tell I'm passionate about this, um, yes. is 
is although we don't have the data, we can't take that to mean it's unsafe. And this right. becomes right. really important right. for people that are transgender or non-binary because gender affirming hormone therapy can be life-saving for people that have gender dysphoria or, or you know, identify as transgender or non-binary. And so our threshold for making clinical decisions have to keep that in mind, that these yeah. treatments are life-saving for this population of patients. That's a really effing important point, right? That actually these, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's just wild. It is really wild when you think about it. And I don't think anyone's ever said it so out like that. So, so, so honest of like, well, you know, we have high rates of suicide. We have high rates of self-harm, et cetera. If we don't do those things, that's the other risk. And it's pretty high likelihood. So you're right there. And that is so powerful. Um, well, and just a, a commentary, not to get too political here, but what, one thing we're seeing is as states start to pass laws, I'm in Arizona and they recently passed a law limiting gender affirming treatments for kids that are transgender and non-binary and there are other states that are have similar laws. Um, that you can understand the consequences, right? If this is a life-saving treatment for for somebody, this is going to have repercussions. And this is when those policies start to kind of bleed over into our clinical practice where we're not able Mm -hmm. to to bring those evidence-based treatments or even those, you know, evidence-supported treatments to the patients that need them most. Well, I was just going to ask you before you said not to get too political, (laughs) (laughs) that you know, I relate a lot of things to midlife women's health. Obviously there's some political backbone to that, but it's still so shielded. It's kind of made more invisible. Cause I think, you know, j- just for whatever reason is mostly, you know, menopause happens to uh, biological females, unless I'm saying that wrong, you'll tell me, but transgender medicine actually seems to be way more in the political spotlight, way mm-hmm. more than even mm-hmm. menopausal care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's so important because like, we can't deny it. And I, I was almost going to ask you, like, why do you think that is? I think we could sit and like have a whole, you could have a whole podcast. I'm sure there are whole podcasts on this, yeah. right? But why, why? And it's also, I mean, it's, it's all the same reasons that abortion is political, but transgender medicine seems to have such a focus right now that, you know, I feel strongly that as clinicians are trying to provide evidence-based care, there's just so much like noise and feedback um, from people who are coming at this with a conservative political lens that must be frustrating. Yeah. And (laughs) if I I think what's always valuable for us in medicine is to try and put ourselves in our patient's shoes, right? Try and walk Mm -hmm. a mile in a transgender person's shoes. So uh, there's many disparities that trans non-binary people face. Um, and whenever we talk about these disparities, it's so important to acknowledge that they're almost all rooted in stigma and discrimination. Um, there's higher rates, like you alluded to, of suicide, self-harm, depression, experiences of trauma, all of these really terrible things that we know in medicine impact people's health negatively. Yeah. So if you're living in a community where you don't feel accepted because there's policies that are being passed that say you can't access that care, then coming into a doctor's office just has to be so terrifying that I think it falls to us to get over our 
concern that we're going to say something wrong and just be there for our patients. And, and if we approach it in like a non-judgmental supportive, like, Hey, I'm here. Cause I want to provide care to you because you deserve it. If I say something wrong, please correct me. And, and let's navigate this together, you know, cutting through the political stuff to try and create that inclusive environment, I think is so important more so now because of the current political environment. I love that. So many good pearls in this so far. So many good gems and revelations, just even for myself. Um, Oh gosh, I was just going to ask you a question and it totally escaped my mind. And of course I'm the host here. So I have to, <laughs> I have to think of what well, I see. But Heather, one, one of the things I was thinking is we were talking ahead of time. Um, you know, you're a menopause expert. We both practice menopause medicine. Um, you know, is there such thing as menopause medicine for transgender people? And like all of the data, there's very limited data. In fact, um, there's a, a book that I just read called What Fresh Hell Is This? And um, Heather, the author, they're non-binary and have a chapter about a transgender woman who's experiencing menopause. I think this is one of the first like written uh, kind of experience of Coming a transgender of woman. And yeah, in menopause. Yeah. Um, and, and it, yeah, it, certainly if somebody's been on gender affirming estrogen, feminizing hormone therapy for a long period of time, just like a cisgender woman who goes through menopause and abruptly loses her estrogen, a transgender woman may experience symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. And that's what this person had shared that they had, you know, what we call menopause symptoms, the same for a transgender or, or woman. Um, mm. And so I think there's this opportunity for us to think about our menopause practice and how we most broadly and inclusively care for, for people, including those that are transgender and non-binary. Yeah. Let's go over that really quickly. When we're thinking about um, patients in midlife, um, for trans patients, um, you know, of course, you can be trans, trans man, trans woman, but let's talk a little bit about both. Um, you know, what are the things that are um, what are the things that are unique and different about that time for let's start with trans women? Yeah, it's going to be so hard to broadly, <laughs> you know, share insights because um, it depends. Like when that trans woman started her feminizing hormone therapy, you know, it's going to be very different if she's fifty and starting hormone therapy versus if she's 15 and she was on, you know, puberty blockers until she started on feminizing hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really individualizing that to each patient and then recognizing that, although we already talked about the fact that we extrapolate a lot of this data from cisgender women, we can't necessarily when it comes to duration of treatment. So oftentimes we think about treating women for the time period that they need during their menopausal transition. But yeah. for transgender women, they're likely going to need or desire feminizing hormone therapy beyond that period of time. Yep. And so it's just really important to listen to the patient and you know yeah. have that discussion about the, the pros and the cons and then be open um, to working with them to to help them meet their, you know, authentic goals or their gender affirming goals. Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? So they may be on hormone therapy uh, past, right? So like the length of menopausal symptoms, so many years, but they may be choosing to be on hormones uh, to treat that, that gender dysphoria for longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, you already mentioned some interesting things like, you know, mammograms 
guidelines and and sort of uh, those kind of screening guidelines that are kind of just you know just kind of continue to sort of be updated and revised as hopeful hopefully we have more and more data um and so I'm going to assume the same way for trans men right I think it might be even more challenging for trans men um you know I can just think about like a very masculine presenting trans men walking into women's health practice because they have, you know, vaginal dryness or whatever term they may be using to describe their bottom parts, dryness that's causing pain with sex. And they need to talk about like what treatment options that they have, which may be similar to what we treat cisgender women that are going through menopause that have vaginal dryness and pain with sex. Um, But, you know, just the barriers like we were talking about before about am I going to be included? Uh, Am I going to be judged? Am I going to be listened to? So I think going one step above and proactively asking about um, some of those sexual functioning questions and any other symptoms that a trans man may have, depending on, again, duration of their um, testosterone treatment or the masculizing um, gender-affirming hormone therapy, how they're using it, those type of things too. So... What do you think about what do you think about telemedicine in these types of scenarios? They so granted you can't do PAPS, <laughs> you know, you like you just you can't do that via telemedicine. It just doesn't work. Yeah, not yet. We haven't figured that out, huh? <laughs> I know. I was thinking about it. The little like little some kind of uh, marble that just goes and does it right. Um, but what do you think about telemedicine in, in terms of counseling? So that I I get this, and I feel that. There's so many different reasons for why we feel out of place at a clinic, right? A, a room full of pregnant ladies and it's hard to get pregnant. You feel awkward. You're a masculine presenting trans male. You walk into a women's health clinic. You feel totally awkward. You're a menopausal lady and you walk into an obstetric office. You feel so awkward. And so what do you think the pros or cons of telemedicine might be for transgender medicine, especially consulting for hormone therapy? I think you set that up so beautifully, Heather, that maybe it does provide a little bit more safety, right? If somebody can join a televisit from the safety of their own home, um, particularly if there's some information ahead of that televisit that you know that that person is affirming of your authentic self, so you feel comfortable and know that it's in confidence where you don't have to go through the potential risk of having somebody use your dead name or your name that was associated with your sex recorded at birth or use your and you know not your pronouns those type of things so I think there's certainly some advantages um I think though we also have to figure out just like at least we're trying to figure out in our practice like where is telemedicine fill a gap and where do we continue to have our face-to-face care Um, because like you said there's certain things we can't do by telemedicine Um, and this population has already faced so much discrimination and stigma that they have disparities in cervical cancer screening and breast cancer screening and all these other health screenings that we want to make sure and overcome those and bring them into the office to get those needed screenings as well but maybe it's a you know the meeting somebody by telehealth and then later you know there's somebody that affirms your authentic self and you can go in and see them for the rest of your care yeah what are some of the big myths about either just societal myths about transgender folk or specifically about you know providing uh of transgender affirming care what are some of the big myths let's deconstruct some of those Yeah, another great question. 
Um, I think probably one of the biggest and one that may fuel some of the things we're seeing policy and political wise is the idea of being transgender as a choice, um, which it, it's not, you know, people that are transgender and non-binary, that's how they're born. Um, and it may take them some time to identify that gender identity and be able to live their authentic self. But um, certainly it's it's not something that they're they're choosing similar to how we think about sexual orientation people that are gay or um, homosexual it's it's not a choice that's just how they are um so if that's the premise you can see that contributing to a lot of um, issues questioning people about um their own gender identity or sexual orientation so that's probably one of the i think the biggest ones biggest, yeah. yeah and then I think similar to that, thinking that it's a disease. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've helped very much with that in medicine. You know, the fact that still gender dysphoria is a DSM-5 diagnosis, which would mm -hmm. suggest that it's a disease, which is, is not the case. You know, it's that dysphoria, it's that disconnect between living authentically as your the gender you identify with and rectifying that with the your sex recorded at birth which is different for every person um but it's not it's it, you know it's a diversity of of people so yeah. yeah what is like the do you know any statistics on or what are the current statistics on you know percentage of folks who identify as non-binary binary and transgender. And actually, we probably did a huge disservice by not defining transgender and non-binary at the beginning. But um, what do we know about um, in incidents, or, or I guess that would be the word, or number of, of, of people who self-identify? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, and maybe I can backtrack a little and just quickly say that transgender people, so a transgender woman is somebody whose sex recorded at birth was male, but they identify as a woman. I should say, and they identify as a woman instead of but. Um, similar, a transgender male is somebody whose sex recorded or assigned at birth was female, and now they identify as a man. Um, of those four constructs we talked about earlier, the sex, the gen gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation, gender identity is the key to figuring out somebody's gender. And it's not, doesn't fall to us to figure out somebody's gender. We just all have right. innate <laughs> a gender identity. Yeah. Non-binary people don't uh, fall on one side of that spectrum. So they're not defined by one particular gender, um, gender queer, non-conforming. There's some other terms that kind of ca capture that as well. Yeah. Um, the most recent um, data, at least that I'm aware from, of is from a survey um, in, I believe, 2015 um, that had people self-identify if they were transgender, um, and it was about 0.63% um, of the population, which translates to about 1.4 million Americans that identify as being transgender, um, which is thought to be uh, underestimation because it's a self-reported um, statistic. Um, yeah. But just to put that into perspective, there's approximately 1.2 million people that have type one diabetes. Hmm. And so I'll often share that because many people will be like, oh yeah, I know someone with type one diabetic diabetes, or I've cared for a type one diabetic in my practice before. So if, if that's the case and there's more transgender people, then clearly we are caring for those people. They are in our communities. We're, you know, in the grocery store, whatnot. And so it really does you know, behoove us to have the information as clinicians to equitably 
provide, you know, a, appropriate care to transgender non-binary people. I wish we could, I, I just, I, I pray for a world where we can all just be, this is an oversimplification, but like, you know, I, I think I, I, I can, I know you're of the same, you know, kind here. It's just like, we want, I want everyone to feel so happy in their skin and feel so happy with who they are mm-hmm. and create a world mm-hmm. where they can really feel like that is totally possible. It would be terrible, terribly privileged of me to think that, um, we're on the way. Um, but hopefully, you know, I think with the shutdown, pandemic, TikTok, social media, hopefully things are at least becoming more um more to dis- dis- discuss, more talked about, more people having more open experiences. So that we just, you know, I just is it is it is it is it <laughs> Too too basic to say. I just want a world where everyone can feel happy within their own skin. Gosh, I want the same thing. Yeah, and so I mean, I think that's why conversations like this, or you know, the work that you're doing, Heather, to bring this into the public discourse, where we're able to have these conversations, will help move that forward. It's we're not in a perfect world, and we'll probably never get there, but we sure as heck can can try, you know, we can keep advocating on behalf of our patients, which I think is what brings us both to our work when we care for, you know, menopausal women is being advocates so that they get um, evidence-based treatment that's not, you know, affected by some historic media perception of the risk of hormone therapy, those type of things. So similar for the transgender non-binary people, we'll just keep working until we get there. Yeah, you're a wealth of knowledge. I stumbled through this entire podcast um, because, but I think it's cool. And I'm totally willing to be the one that stumbles live because if, if you feel like that's you, that's also me too. And I have, you know, certainly several um, non-binary, um, a few, I don't think I have any trans folks, at least, but I have certainly a lot, uh, several non-binary patients that that were on my panel. And, um, you know, I just want to make sure that uh, one, I think this was such a good conversation um, that, you know, if I am being honest, just with where maybe my shortcomings are, I'm still going to be better than not thinking through them, not reading the latest evidence um, and not making my patients feel comfortable. Um, It's so, so, so important because of the risks of not doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much for, um, thank you so much for like taking, tackling a topic with me that, um, as the one leading us on this journey, <laughs> you know, um, uh, that you just went along with the ride for me. It, it was a pleasure, Heather. I'd be happy to come back. It's always lovely to talk with you. Oh, it's always lovely to talk with you. Thank you guys so much. Well, let's have you back. If you guys have any questions, comments, things you want to ask me, send me a DM over on Instagram. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. I will link all the information where you can find Jewel. She has a really big Twitter account. I'll link you there and we'll definitely, definitely have you back. This was long overdue. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone. I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Bye. If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. 
Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode.